You serve the ecosystem that brought you together. That's how spirits work. They're relationship builders. That's literally how they work. By the A cause information fields pull in together people into each other and create relationship and then create a family, which is more like, you know, it's like the Hegelian dialectic of thesis, antithesis, and synthesis. You you create a new piece of information from two pieces of information come together. And so with a lot of our interacting with other humans happening online now, we need to be really aware of who are we serving? Whose ecosystem are we serving? Well, naturally, we serve, and that means we will be serving an algorithmic online ecosystem. And so one of the great things that I have a lot of passion about is being, like, I think what's being called upon, and I think this is where the Japanese sensibility is actually quite instructive or valuable, is that there is a need to mediate as a shaman between two spirit realms. So between the metaverse and earth, there is a need for a shaman to actually mediate. And that mediation is psychedelically happens through the body, like it happens through yourself. Because all of us are essentially turning into cyborgs without knowing it. People are walking around as AIs and, and are arguing about AI, but it's like, you're already an AI, you're literally... <laughs> Greetings, future fossils, and welcome to the first 2023 episode of the podcast that explores our place in time. I'm your host, Michael Garfield, and this week we are welcoming back Tadaaki Hazumi, one of my favorite weirdos, on whose first episode in... 149, we discussed cultural somatics, their investigation of the way that each of us fit within the experience and the trauma of the collective minds and bodies in which we exist. But that was a while ago, and this year, I was eager to speak to Tada again after their long soul-searching journey, their ancestral family homelands in Japan working at a temple their family has operated for thousands of years. Every once in a while, I feel bold enough to share a kind of conversation on this show that I worry people will either just accept uncritically or will condemn me for believing I have lost my mind. And this is one glorious such conversation dialogue in which Tada and I try to find a balance between the many conflicting histories of the world that we have inherited, between the worlds of the mundane and the transcendent, between what we know, what we merely believe, and a reality that lies far beyond the orbit and the ambit of the familiar. In the first of two parts of this almost three-hour conversation, Tata and I talk about alternative world histories, about how the esoteric traditions of the indigenous societies of what is now Japan have survived into the postmodern era and the way that those traditions inflect and inform a highly technologized 21st century East and much more. And because this episode is coming out a little later than I had hoped... It is my intention to get you the next one on regular schedule sometime next week. So stick around for part two coming sooner than usual. But first, I would like to thank every single person who has supported me and this show from its inception in 2016 through to the present day, including all of the new Patreon supporters, Sarah Leslie, 
George Smith, Alexandra Farmer, Mato, and Kirsten Sanford, the wonderful host of one of my favorite science podcasts, This Week in Science. I also want to thank everyone who recently signed up for a free or paid Substack subscription and the folks who have been buying my music over at Bandcamp, as well as everyone who has rated and reviewed this show recently on Spotify or on Apple Podcasts. This is a listener-supported, ad-free program that could not exist without your contributions, financial or otherwise. I continue to edit every episode by hand, as well as contributing countless hours a month to the curation and moderation of the Facebook group and Discord server. And I release a ton of stuff for free, including, as of this episode, a brand spanking new essay up on Substack about biophysical scaling laws, innovation, and festival culture, as well as a new studio signal, long, long overdue for one of my fan favorite tracks, the song When the Orbit Curtain Falls about my string of alien encounters outside Lawrence, Kansas in 2006 and 7. Thank you for being bold and letting me follow my curiosity wherever it leads and for being willing to join me along this path as we find it together in these mysterious and haunted woods. And now, please kick back and enjoy my conversation with Tadaaki Azumi, part one. You've had a lot going on, right? It feels like you've had like a shit ton going on. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, it's like, it's like multiplied by just the kids, you know, <laughs> right. I, I think the, Dealing with the stuff at home would be fine on its own. Dealing with the stuff at work mm-hmm. would be annoying, but fine on its own. And mm-hmm. then just the like, the both of them together, you know. Right. And then there's then there's future fossils, right? Which exists still somehow. There's so many good things about having a home, like having a house. But like, I come from Jews on one side and Celts on the other. Like worshiping in the wilderness you know, keeping unwritten oral traditions that, and being like, you know, these, these, these people that, you know, that, uh, at odds with on, on some fundamental level, and this is the bridge, I guess, into our conversation are at odds with, uh, temples like Moses versus his son, Aaron, like when Aaron actually goes into Israel and like starts worshiping God in a building, then he's broken the covenant his father made with God while they were wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. And then like the Romans come in and wipe out the Celts and drive them out of Europe because they're, they're worshiping in the woods and they're keeping their traditions secret and they're not writing them down. So the Romans don't know how to control them. So they just murder them. Oh, and so part of that. Yeah. So there's like this whole, like in my life, when I think about like Rolf Potts's book, Vagabonding, or Hakim Bey's Temporary Autonomous Zone, these books that made this huge impact on me personally. They're books about worshiping in the, the wilderness, like, uh, like living in uncertainty, like allowing things to remain unresolved, you know, con- keeping, keeping yourself moving, like, you know, and like this whole thing about like settling down. And, you know, some people feel very comfortable in a, you know, having settled down. And, and yet, you know, I, do, I don't have, as you seem to have, like that's my continuity. Those are my roots. 
mm-hmm. is like being like a yeah. wanderer. And so mm-hmm. like this, like I envy my buddy who like lives in the school in Australia, who lives in the same converted school bus that he went to school in as a kid and like has a beard that he's never shaved, like still has this unshaved beard from his like entire adult life, you know? And like, and, and yet like at the same time, he has this other thing, which I envy, which is the ability to like follow the quote unquote Buffalo by taking that bus and his whole little scraggly family around Australia following festival season every year. And so there's this thing that I feel like I'm trying to play out to understand in my life and to understand in future fossils, which is how to reconcile. And Chris Ryan's episode, I don't know if you heard that, where he wrote Civilized to Death, but he, you know, he quit, he moved out, he lives in a van with his partner. And he, you know, he talks a lot about unhousing and like helping people kind of escape from the, the bricks into the flowing juices of civilization. (laughs) <laughs> you know like how to and so that's why i loved your stuff in the first place was because that you know you writing about trauma and dance and improvisation and and like oh, okay. you know and funk and like how do you wiggle your way out of the prison is like such a big deal but anyway that's 10 minutes of my ranting at you how are you doing <laughs> <laughs> well i'm uh, <clears throat> i'm in the uk <gasps> yeah so I left Japan. Um, I was there for a few months. I'm in the UK, kind of visiting a, a likely, yeah, visiting a collaborator of mine. And that's a whole trip. But um, yeah, to be honest, last the last two years has been rough. It's been pretty much rough since I've been on your podcast, actually. <laughs> the last episode of Future Fossil Life has changed a lot. But honestly, yeah, it's been a really crazy year. I don't know if it's like dramatic, but I feel like I don't know, like you're, I imagine you have big shoes to fill at Future Fossils itself because it's like, it feels like a lot more people need the kind of information that you kind of go through. A lot more people need access to that kind of information. And yeah, it just feels like the world is changing really fast. It's changing really, really fast. And I don't, you know, I feel like, I feel like you jump into a lot of the conversations like the, you know, the AI conversation, then there's the ancient apocalypse conversation. It's like, those are connected conversation. That's where it gets really meaty, right? That's where, like, where those conversations actually meet. Mm. Um, so that's kind of like, I think, really big. I've been a lot more inside the esoteric now. I'm a bit more like nosedived in. Mm. You can edit it out, but I watched a David Icke video last year on New Year's Day. Do you want me to edit that out? No, probably not. <laughs> my mom, my mom is a big David Icke fan. Um, oh, really? Yeah. I mean, she's, but she's one of these people that I think she taught me to be just like a gourmand of weird alternative worldviews, which is what constantly gets me in trouble is like, it's like, I have more of an aesthetic appreciation for like the million weird directions that people want to run with their version of reality than I actually like want to believe it. Right. Like, right. It's like you still want to you still want to sample everything. But anyway, go on. Yeah. Yeah. No, no. It was um, it was kind of like, what are you allowed to watch? Letter, what are you allowed to read? And I was like, <laughs> at, the beginning of, at the beginning of last year, like I noticed like energy shift because of all the years of political polarization. And I could just feel in the cultural field, the collective field, people wanted to actually come across the aisle, so to speak. 
you know, conservatives and leftists wanted to actually chat at the gas stand. Like they're like been sick of what's been going on. It was really noticeable. Uh, a lot more people dating across political spectrums than I ever knew. Because you know how like for a while there, if you're like a social justice warrior, you date other social justice warriors. And if you're a conservative, you date other conservatives. Like it's like people st- like, but I noticed a lot more people actually being interested across political spectrum even romantically which i was like that's really interesting so i just like flipped up a david Icke video and i was like oh shit like okay well now i get why people are into this but that doesn't mean like i like ingested all of it but it was just Mm. like it's always really fun to watch the thing you're not you're being told you're not supposed to because you know (laughs) like i got canceled for watching a jordan peterson video like you know what i mean and being like oh okay so it's like i'm already like the target of all this shit so who canceled you I mean, that's not even. Because, like, I was like, you know, it's funny because I have a couple, like, again, my mom and like some of my close friends in Santa Fe are actually quite fond of Jordan Peterson and have reintroduced me to some of his material. And then I'm like listening to and I'm like, actually, you know, this is pretty sensible shit. Like, the aura around it's like all of this stuff, there's like some little piece worth working yeah. with in in like pretty much anything and then there's like other stuff that's problematic and it's really hard for me to like know how it is appropriate to s- yeah. separate that or to ma- yeah. navigate that yeah so uh we can put that up on the board and like have some thoughts but yeah i think the thing i've been really excited to talk to you today about is like ancient apocalypse because i know that thread went crazy on your facebook feed and i was like just watching it going like, oh everybody's spinning out on that one and i was like hey i don't know what i have to say about that because i've been keeping my lip tight on a lot of stuff probably and obviously the other right thing now. sorry probably smart right now i actually got yeah, yeah. i got myself into some trouble for that one. yeah you know? yeah i noticed and i'm like dude man you don't why do you have to go through that but and then i think the other big one's the ai art one or ai in general that i think it's like those are like the two subjects i saw like people get most emotional around you AIR and like the ancient apocalypse. And I'm like, oh, okay. So I think it'd be really fun to be able to discuss where those things meet. Because mm-hmm. I don't know. I know you've been thinking. I mean, I've been thinking. Totally. So, so. like, okay. So, but first, <laughs> you and I have some uh, common priors that I think we need to unpack for people. And also, I just want to hear, like, I want to start with a bit of a, a personal memoir, travelogue kind of deal. Because the thing that I really wanted to, foreground with you in this conversation was that you just spent a ton of time in Japan and that you have this family lineage that you went there to deepen your embrace of or experience of and that that has informed the last few conversations that you and I have had about the the way that like Japanese angles on technology can be better understood and you know the time that you spent working in the temple and all of that stuff so if we can just like lay out matter of fact like you know what you were doing in in japan and like the story around all of that and i think that gives us Mm -hmm. that gives us the right springboard into all of this other stuff okay yeah okay so a little what wild shit is that um you're doing your ancestral practice and, you know, you're exploring your ancestors in trance states and talking to them for a few years, you know. Um, I was doing that for a while, um, helping people with that kind of work too. And, 
you know, I'm in a very self-exploratory way, not saying I'm like the expert of anything, but, um, you know, just going along. And at a certain point, you start seeing and you're realizing like, wait a second, who are my ancestors? Wait, wait a second. Wait, 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 wait. What's going on here? Um, and so like, I don't know if folks know, but um, my first work was called uh, Cultural Somatics. So the basic um, idea of the work is, was that, um, you know, like how collect- Jung says there's a collective unconscious. I said there was a collective nervous system. So there's a body to that unconscious and it acts through this kind of amorphous body that's a cultural body. So different political movements, social movements all fit into the movement of this, of this kind of collective body or cultural soma. So that was kind of like the first work that I did that I think a lot of people know me for. And so when I started doing this ancestor work, I was starting to go like, wait a second, where did all that shit come from? And something that revealed to me was when I started uh, studying my um, patrilineal line, which is the Hozumi line. And basically over and over, I heard that we were yin-yang magicians or yin-yang priests. So those are like a special class of priests that take after um, yin-yang and five elements, um, you know, that kind of uh, what they call yin-yang science. And so people who study that become yin-yang masters. And yin-yang magic was actually, in fact, a part of the Japanese imperial court. So the imperial courts of Japan would have their court astrologers, divination artists, um, you know, feng shui artists, spellcasters, etc. So my family apparently had started off essentially as like, this is the part that's easiest to describe and then gets a little bit crazier after. But they start off as yin yang priests uh, for the imperial court of Japan. And that's, that starts in about probably uh, 600 to 700 CE. So it's, it's like a 1300 year tradition already at that point. And so I was like, oh, wait a second. Oh, wait a second. So this whole idea of cultural somatics and cultures are bodies. I was like, wait a second. Those are that's what my ancestors studied because a lot of the even um, you know we're talking yin yang magic goes back to China, right? And in China, what were they doing to control these huge empires? Is essentially using Chinese medicine, right? They see the populace as a body and they use Chinese medicine to move energies and stuff. And I was like, oh shit! Like that's what my um, family's been doing. So that was like a big reveal. And I was like, oh, okay, wild. Okay, so I've been actually tracing my family's footsteps, like quite literally, and I can. You know, when I'm on psilocybin journeys, I can like literally pick out, oh, there's that dude. There's that dude. There's that dude that sees things this way that implanted that, you know, like it became very, very detailed. So that was kind of wild. And where it got really interesting is when I started um, reading more into the Japanese esoteric. So esoteric Japanese histories and stuff. Um, And it's a part of like kind of my general, you know, Diving into esotericism for me has been really strange because it's actually been a, a study of my own family because my family's lineage would, does appear like my ancestral deities appear in like divine texts and stuff and said X happened and X people moved around, right? Does that make sense? It's just like, it's a study of myself. So when I'm reading things, I'm like, oh, these people meant a- and X aliens? Oh, I see. Okay, wait a second. Who's that? That's my ancestors. Okay, alien. Where aliens are they around? I'm like, oh shit. So that's kind of what it's been like. But basically, the synopsis is kind of that. Like, I've found that essentially my family line, and there's still a few Hazumis left who are practicing. 
one of the oldest shrines in, in Japan is right now under the custodianship of a family member, the master um, Tenyu Fuzumi, 53rd generation, I think, priest of a 1300-year-old sacred site. And it's really heavy. Like The legends of the site are like a dragon lord. In ancient times, a dragon lord and his wife and his child visited the site. And then I was like, okay. And then later there was like a light on the, a light, divine light landed at the end of the pier or something like that, end of the bay, which you can see from the shrine. And then they created a shrine for that light, you know? So it's like everything they're talking about is a bit like, hmm, what's going on here? But anyways, this, um, the shrine is still um, under our family care by the 53rd generation priest. And basically, over the last few months, or sorry, in, over the summer this year, I was in Japan for a few months, really trying to understand what's going on around all this. And I think I've reached a point of pretty like confirmed that like essentially a lot of the Japanese shamanic slash imperial lineages, because the shamanic lineage is also royal lineages. They're not, they're both, they're one and the same a lot of the time that they originate in the uh, Near East. So Mesopotamia. And yeah, there's a lot of, things that happened across the Silk Road that happened in secret. So there are like ancestry theories, and they're a little bit French, but about Japan and the Jews, uh, Japanese Jewish common ancestor theory. That needs to be broken down a bit. I think it's a little bit too, a lot of people now say it's a little bit too broad stroke, but it's a little bit more now broken down into Japanese Near East common ancestor um, theory. And that seems to land a lot more. One of the big things is like the civilization of Sumeria, the ancient civilization of Sumeria. And the ancient Japanese imperial title is uh, Sumera Mikoto. So the emperor of Sumer is actually the official title <laughs> of the Japanese throne. And it's been like that for a while. Sumera actually literally means imperial. They didn't know what it meant. And then, you know, people discover Sumeria and they're like, wait a second. You know, and then if you go into um, Buddhism, there's Mount Sumer, where, you know, the Lord lives. It's kind of like Mount Sumer, huh? Interesting. So there's a hidden secret of the Silk Road that I think the Western world doesn't actually re- fully register. And how much the traditions of the Near East traveled eastward is actually a really undocumented exercise. And i realizing that the um, Asian language speaking information field and particularly the Japanese information field, because that's what I can read, has a lot li- lot different information and li- some, a lot of its linguistic synchronicities and things like that, that the West doesn't actually have access to, but would probably shake people's heads a bit because there's very simple things. It looks like, I don't know if people know, there's this, these mountain priests or divine beings called the Tengu in Japanese lore. And the, the Tengu where what, you could only probably call a teflon. So, you know, it's like the boxes that a lot of, you know, like rabbis wear on their heads, to res- um, I think, to recite certain passages in the Torah. They have a teflon. They have these like long, scra- long noses, scraggly beards below on a seashell, a big conch, actually, as opposed to a lamb's horn, right? But it's like, and the Tengu carry for the people who follow uh, the become the disciples of the Tengu, become good students, they receive what they call uh, a toranomaki, so 
which means tiger scroll, but there's no tigers in Japan. So it's actually Torah scroll. Like that's how wild it is. <laughs> so it's like, it's kind of like obvious. It's like literally obvious. So in the Tengu appear out of nowhere. Like mm-hmm. it's not like these people in our lore were predated by other beings in their, like how they dress. The Tengu all of a sudden dress like that appear out of nowhere in Japanese cosmology of myth. And they're known to be teachers to all these spiritual people. So like, for example, Mikao Usui, who's the founder of Reiki, he went to Mount Kurama, which is like a famous mountain outside of Kyoto where a lot of adepts study. They were said to be the home of the Tengu. There's like Tengu sculptures everywhere. And he went out and had a 10-day fast and received Reiki in the mountains. Like, what's going on there? You know, so... And this, this Kurama mountain has connections to theosophy that they actually just say that they are connected. And the deity that is in house there is the, the great demon lord. And his name is Sonten. And as they say, like the official type, like the official story of Kurama mountain, you have to remember this is like an ancient site, right? And so like the Buddhist priests that are running this place are legit. And they're saying like, Sonten came from like Venus. I'm like, oh, okay. What the hell? <laughs> it's like, so that's the thing. Not to, not to just completely dive off into crazy, but like, why not? Right. When I was in Peru in 2011, the super sketchy, arrogant curandero, like Brujo, who served me and, and my friends ayahuasca. And then it also turned out like Toei and like, the center that we worked at no longer exists because this guy ended up in a a fraught legal situation because he accepted basically this like runaway 18 year old for ceremony and then like served him detura without his knowledge as he was doing to us and like pretty much everyone else. And then this kid died from like heart failure. And then this dude lied to his parents when his parents came looking. And said that he had just gone nuts and run off into the woods. But anyway, this guy, at the time that I was there, I didn't take a super, like a lot of people were really angry about the lack of sort of, like they were coming down thinking, oh, ayahuasca is going to be this like embraced by this like compassionate mother. And, And so this dude who sent us down into the woods to go sit through this ordeal, each of us alone in our own little screened in enclosure and told us not to even interact with one another and told us that we were being initiated as warriors and all of this stuff. I took it all as face value as like, well, I'm down here to be, to go through an ordeal. And so that's what I I'm getting. And I signed on for it, but he said that he came from a tradition that dated back 40,000 years and actually originated on Mars. (laughs) And like, while I was in ceremony, I had what I can only call like a past life regression where I was on Mars and <laughs> died died in an explosion and had this whole like sort of Viking Valhalla attitude about it where it was like I had like emotional neutrality about the fact that oh yeah you live by the sword you die by the sword this is how you go and then later my buddy Jacob Amon and of Golden Stupa Media and um he lives out on Synergy Ranch now here in Santa Fe Jacob wanted to has been harassing me and my friends about reading this book by Jose Arguelles called The Arcturus Probe, which is all about this like esoteric history 
of Earth that goes through a lost civilization on Mars. And then there's the whole weird thing about the Xenon-129. There's like a paper published at the, the U.S. Geographical Society a few years ago that's like contentious and and people like Gordon White uh, have talked about how like Elon Musk and all these people know that there's this this paper that a lot of planetologists dismiss but apparently there is a radioactive isotope in the atmosphere of Mars that on Earth could only be explained by an airborne nuclear detonation so it's like there's this whole conspiracy theory around the story that there was, you know, and, and a, a ton of like the, I forget, I think it's the Southern hemisphere of Mars. The whole thing has been excavated somehow and is like considerably lower topographically than the Northern hemisphere. And it looks to, it to you know, to at least some people like what, that like there was this enormous planet scale detonation. And there's like all these weird, mysterious craters and stuff on Mars that like, you know, like they couldn't be aren't aren't explicable by volcanism. Anyway, this is me doing what I was doing on Facebook that got me in trouble. But like, so when you, when, anyway, so when you're talking about like different lineages, literally coming from different off world celestial bodies and, and like star, you know, star people and this kind of thing, it's like, I'm, yeah, I'm yeah, kind of yeah. willing to hold the line. I'm, I'm willing, okay. I'm willing to entertain this stuff just because like, I don't know what else to do with these experiences that I've had and these like weird papers that are floating around. And anyway, so thank you and go on. <laughs> no, no. I mean, that, so that's good. We have, that's a great place to, for us to like open up the combo because it's like my ancestor, um, who's um, my, my patrilineal head deity is called um, Nigihayahi no Mikoto. Like the legend of Nigihayahi no Mikoto is like literally coming on this thing called a heavenly rock ship, quote unquote, to Earth with the 10 divine treasures of the dragon lord sent by the divine sun goddess Amaterasu. Like that's, that's the legend. And people say this, you know, this was the rock that he traveled on, but there's like three rocks around the country that people claim, you know, it's like that. And so for actually for folks um, who might know who've seen Spirit Away, the anime, the dragon in anime, uh, the dragon boy whose real name is Nigihayami uh, no Kohakunushi, so is actually set as a descendant of my ancestral deity. So it's like really weird. So like that's kind of weird shit. Like I'm in, mean, it's like anime characters are part of my family line. And this is like the kind of psychedelic nature of dealing with ancestral and other kinds of healing when you're in like a really intact culture because the pop culture is based on your family. And so in the collective unconscious, like your family stuff just literally appears on its like, it's really weird. But anyways, um, yeah, it's like the origination of my ancestors are basically saying is somehow rode these spaceships. Like it's literally there. And a lot of the, the Japanese lore is about people arriving on spaceships and those people still have shrines are all around Japan that haven't been disturbed for a, th- a few thousand years. So that's where it gets really, really bananas. But it was interesting because when I was watching Ancient Apocalypse, you know, it's kind of like, oh, like my family's shit is a bit like that. So what I didn't mention was like, yeah, there's so Sumeria. And then the, my understanding is that the lineage of knowledge actually predates Sumeria, of course. But probably the repopulation of knowledge throughout the world after a great flood. Like that's, there are literally Japanese parahistory documents that are coming right now that say the same thing. 
as those. Like there's the Takenouchi documents I, I sent you. Um, yeah, you'll have to forgive me. It's been, I've been in the ho- yeah, yeah, holiday no, explosion. <laughs> no, it's all good. We'll put them in the yeah, show notes. I'll read them before we publish this. Yeah. 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 So the Takenouchi documents are like a um, document said to be kept by the Takenouchi family who are consorts to the, um, the Japanese Royal Imperial Court and were like hid these documents or guarded these secrets for thousands of years. That's like their story. Um, sometimes they'd have to, you know, evade death and like, you know, do all this stuff. But in, um, I think the seventies or sixties or something like that. one of the members of the family, Kiyomaro uh, Takenouchi came out with like, essentially started splashing the secrets and saying, this is actually the actual official history of Japan. And the official history of Japan goes like, essentially it's talking about what people would call the lost continent of Lemuria. So there was a whole like sea Pacific kind of continent empire that was ruled by who they called the Sumera Mikoto. This is where kind of like Japanese history, like we have to like, it's like para history, especially we have to be a bit like Dasha soy sauce, because when people refer to Japan in the ancient sense, if you start going back 10,000 years, it's like, it's not actually Japan. Right? So, but people are reading it through a nationalist gaze. So you have to you know, excuse that a bit, but um, essentially it was ruled by like the Japanese emperor. So this continent of Lemuria and there was like a flood <laughs> and then, you know, like they had to reboot. Like that's the basic idea from what I, from what I remember, what I understand. And, also, the emperor also had like alien origins. There, I think they're kind of like a hybrid or something like that. So that's like the, and this is not like this is said to be a fake document or a hoax, but it's also like the family that issued this statement or like put out this text, the Takenouchi documents, the first one, like literally do have an operator shrine that you can go to. You know what I mean? And so it's like not as it's like. It's very esoteric and far out, but the actual sites exist. The stewardship is under people who are actually kind of proper. Does that make sense? It's like they're actually traditional, but the stuff that's coming out of their mouth is really wild. So this is like a weird combination in Japan. And since then, there has been like somebody, another member of the family saying, this is the real Takenouchi documents because it's purely oral history. So that that came out um, only uh, uh, 10, 15 years ago, I think. So that's been all question for mm-hmm. you. Okay. So like, yeah, here's yeah. another thing that doesn't yeah. make a ton of sense to me is that mm-hmm. this same dude in Peru claimed that the lineage of his tradition, which was originally more associated with, uh, Huachuma than it was with ayahuasca and dates back through these the whole, like, we're going to isolate you and we're going to put you through an intense psychedelic experience alone to initiate you as a warrior had its roots in the Shimbre tradition. That's, that's the group. And then this tradition was taking people on Huachuma and then putting them in a cave up in the Peruvian mountains that deep in the cave that they would have to find their way out of without the use of their eyes. Like you had to, you had to basically develop higher senses, sensory faculties in order to find your way back out of the cave. And right. And these people, like another thing that I had in this, these experiences was an encounter with these, all 17 of us actually separately that were there for this encountered these sort of like liquid metal giant 
praying mantis type black aliens that ap- appeared to us individually in our things. And then there are these, the Shimbre, <laughs> the, the, the Shimbre culture okay. has like all over Peru, there are these rock carvings that are like part of their, their own sort of, I mean, it's, it's like their, their sort of iconography and the rock carvings have this, this character in some of them that looks like that they like modern interpreters call it like a monkey or whatever. But I was like looking at this rock carving the day after the ceremony. And it's like this triangular headed eyeless thing that I was like, that's the fucking mantis. Anyway, that's all sort of a tangent. But the thing is that this guy who was leading the ceremonies or rather not, he wasn't even like present. He was just giving us the stuff and having us walk into the, but like the guy who was you know in charge there said that his lineage came from Mars through Lemuria. Oh, that makes yeah. sense. And so like, so my question to you is actually sort of more like, okay, so this is not like these days, it's like none of this, none of these sources are like perfectly uncontaminated, right? Like this guy was like up there in his, his bedroom watching American horror films at night while we were down in ceremony. So like, you know, there's this question for me, which is like, how much of this can we trust as like convergent, agreeing, authentic historical narratives that are all talking about the same, like, okay, Atlantis, you know, there's like the great flood, like that stuff. Uh, Like it's, it seems pretty obvious that everybody's, you know, that we can, even like mainstream archaeologists are like, yeah, everybody talks about the great flood, you know, but like, I don't know where Lemuria came from, you know, and I don't know, like, is it, is this a thing that one society kind of picked up and then everybody else picked up on it and like backcast into, I mean, it's just like, you know, like I, I think that the skeptic in me is kind of, is kind of inclined to to believe that this guy was just blowing smoke up our asses because he, he felt like he was dealing with like new age gringos And, you know, and it's like, it's not, it's not clear to me that like, even though certain parts of what he told us about his tradition were unquestionably accurate, it's just strange that this like, that Lemuria keeps showing up again and again. And like in Rudolf Steiner's stuff and like, I I don't know, I don't know. So that's. Yeah. I mean, um, so this is like, I think the larger context though, you know, like in even talking about the lost con, I'm not an expert on Lemuria by any means. I'm just kind of like saying like, at this point, I have to believe my family are essentially part of that lineage and we're aware of it. That's the scary, that's the weird part is that a lot of these secret traumatic and imperial lineages remember where they're from, but they don't tell you. So that seemed to be a big part of all the, a lot of the Japanese traumatic families are like that. Their secrets and stuff that you're not telling, they don't even tell you that they're from the Near East. You know, they just have somehow populated and like kind of infused the symbolism into Japanese Shintoism. Right? And that's kind of how they've been operating. Um, what I would say is that, like, um, I think, you know, the subject of Lemuria is a big one for us in our collective unconscious because we're facing a possible extinction event ourselves. Clearly, that's why we're interested, right? And that's why people have a lot of feelings about it. So I think my feeling is that whatever, you know, there's so much going on in the world, like conspiracy theories, all this stuff. This is from Atlantis. This is from Mars. This is from Venus. This is from Sirius, you know, like all the stars and all the systems. You're like, whoa, how do I sort all this information? What's actually true? 
I do think something that we can say is generally true, probably has a general truth, at least to me, that's kind of like where I go, is that we're in a time where there are, we do probably have to reckon that there are secret knowledge systems that are not discussed widely in the world that have a life from those lost civilizations. They've survived. They've intentionally been kept. It's a lot about how the world is constructed. A lot of it is probably about um, aliens and deities and how that world all makes sense. You know, how did they, and I, I do have some thoughts about that actually. There is like an intricate system, but it's about how to manage the world that we're living in, which is actually a lot more fantastical than what we think it is now. And that knowledge is about to become really important and is starting to resurface. That's what I see personally. Like everybody's having to deal with like these things that we thought were the thing of the movies. You're like, wait a second, the movies were just preparing us for reality. And our information field on the planet itself is moving towards a different information field. Like, you know, the cosmos has created an information. I think that, you know, like the a causal principle is the one that connects a lot of us. And you won't have, you know, you know, like there's the causal cosmos and the a causal cosmos architected at information. And the planet as a whole, the logos of the planet is moving into a different information field. I think that's true. Oh, that, that seems, um, that seems relatively inarguable. I want to, I want to, I want to, maybe yeah, now is not the yeah. time, but I want to pin here into when you talk about causal and a-causal information fields. Because like one of the things that I really appreciated about Eric Wargo and his hypothesis and argument about time loops is that it gives him what he considers as someone who thinks in terms of mechanistic, physicalist, and causal cosmology, an explanation for what people like Carl Jung were experiencing and described in terms of a causal connective mm-hmm. principles, mm-hmm. but in a way that, that, you know, Wargo can say, but there is a mechanism here. It's just nonlinear in time. Yes. And so, yes, exactly. Yeah, it's a causal. Right. So if that's what you mean, that's like different from what people like Jung were talking about when they talk about synchronicity. Which oh, is, no, I think yeah. it's the same, yeah. actually. Okay, go ahead. So I think, so my sense is that the causal universe is our universe where A makes B happen, B makes C happen, it's linear, and time is moving linearly forward. And the A causal universe has, there's no, right, it's connected through meaning. That A causal universe is actually time works in reverse, so pulls the future towards itself. So that's how synchronicity works, because information is a connective tissue of our of the structure of our world if we're actually able to pay attention to that and synchronicity is essentially what other dimensional beings are they literally are synchronicity like what people call deities like or fey or kami or any kind of being that's intangible what they are is a synchronous information field that pulls people into having an experience that's a causal Mm. By thereby t- telling you that they exist, they're like, we exist, you know now, because you had an A-causal experience that will not make sense to you unless you have this a- you know, synchronous experience. And then there's some from there. Then it gets bananas. <laughs> but the, the causal universe is the one in the universe of like, you know, modern science that we've been working with. And then obviously the A-causal universe is in the realm of the esoteric. And obviously we're in a place where both of those things are starting to come together um that's you know. my experience yeah 
Yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah. So I think that's what I mean. I think we're in a really interesting time where it's like that, like even a causality, we're reaching to points of understanding. We integrate it with our understanding of causality and that, you know, it's like the singularity. It's all happening. It's really crashing right now together. But I think one of the, when I talk about information fields, like something that could be interesting is, for example, um, it's going to get a little bit long. There's a, um, do you want, do you want a little tidbit? Go for it. That's why you're here. Okay. So there's um, this uh, Japanese document channeled by uh, Tenmei Okamoto, who was a Shinto priest and artist um, just right after World War II, he started channeling. And I think it was about eight years or something. It was automatic writing he was channeling through. And it's called the uh, Hitsuke Shinji or the um, Sun Moon Revelations. And the Hitsuke Shinji or Sun Moon Revelations was like a pretty prophetic text, but, you know, it's for like only certain people were into it. Like it got forgotten. But the basic content of the Hitsuke Shinji was saying that like the world is about to face a great challenging cataclysm before we welcome the a new world, a new earth. That's the basics of the Hitsuke Shinji. And the original script of the Hitsuke Shinji were written in a cipher of letters and numbers. So like the artist who channeled it, uh, Tenmei Okamoto, he had he himself was like, I don't know what this means. So it, it actually had to be translated. And fascinatingly, one of the main passages in the Hitsuke Shinji wrote that the numbers five, six, seven are meant to be read as Miroku. So Miroku is the Japanese name of the Bodhisattva Maitreya, who is essentially come to restore the Dharma in the fifth fifth era or something when the Dharma has fallen off. The Maitreya comes and like fixes our world, basically. Uh, it's a kind of like a salvational. Yeah. Quick question. Yeah. Do you know of any comparative work that can confirm or deny that the fifth era in this context is or is not related to the era of the fifth sun in Mayan cosmology? I have no idea. Okay. But I bet you it could be really bad. Too. Just a question into the wind then. Yeah, just a know. question okay, okay. Okay. for the audience yeah. to explore. Yeah. Right. So uh, Maitreya, you know, Japanese name is Miroku, right? Miroku can be broken into three numbers itself, too. The first one is Miroku, so that's three sixes. So that's 666. Great. The number of the beast in the apocalypse. Fantastic. The other is Miroku, which is 369, which would be the Tesla code, if folks know that. So really interesting. So on one hand, Miroku itself can be broken down to 666 and then 369, which have like very different emanations right, for us. And then they're saying that the prophecy says that this, remember, this is automatic writing too, right? Tenmei Okamoto has no idea what he's channeling. So 567 is meant to be read as 369 or 666. Oh, that's interesting. So the sun moon revelations became recently very popular because the numbers 567 can be read as Go Rokunana. And that became a synchro with Corona at the beginning. That was the wild. Further wild was that they said the most crucial year will come in the year of the mouse. The last year of the mouse was 2020 when the pandemic began. What's interesting about this, and this is what I mean about information fields, right? And it calls them information fields and like, what is the world coming into? 
is that let's say if you speak Japanese or not, you have actually a different information field for synchronicities. Because the prophecies are not just X will happen, Y will happen. They're linguistic, numerical synchronicities built into the prophecy. And that's how they work, is my understanding. So the Japanese information field is actually different from the Western one. Like literally is different. The field of information is literally different. And so that was like a really big eye-opener for me. It's like, oh, you actually switch languages. You actually get a whole different set of information. And that world is literally constructed differently in some ways, but still connects to everything else, but has a really different character. And so the sun moon revelations for sure has been um, vastly interesting, not only because uh, Miroku is Maitreya, and Maitreya is connected back to Mithra. And of course, Mithra is connected to Christ because they share the same birthday. <laughs> right? December 25th. Hello. That means also the prophecy of Maitreya and Miroku is the prophecy of the second coming of Christ as well, if you actually connect the strands. So this is what I mean, like the Near East and the Far East are actually like intimately connected, but people don't. People pretend that it's not. But so that's like, yeah, information field wide. That's been, yeah, quite fascinating for me. Mm -hmm. Mm. So I don't know, this, this may be like a complete hairpin turn here, but yeah, sure. I mean, I remember while you were in Japan, you were talking a lot about animism. And the last conversation that you and I had was, and this is where the, uh, you know, we're going to like kind of double down on the technology piece, if, you, if you're if you willing to go there with me, which yeah, is, because yeah. I mean, I think we've been teasing people with like where, you know, the AI and, you know, lost, ancient oh, yeah, lost yeah, civilization yeah, yeah. people. Right. Yes. And, and, and so the and is that I was enamored of your reflections that you were sharing on, on Facebook through this whole experience where you were, you were talking, of, and even before that, when you and I had our, our chat after I'd recorded the Ecodelia episode with Sophie and, and, and Rich and, and Sam about how in America, People are like, oh, it's cute. The Japanese cars look like they have little faces on them, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. but then there's this actual, you know, when you live in like, I don't know if this is precisely what you meant by like the character of the information field being different, but like you live in a, in a society that has maintained an unbroken continuity into the, like the 21st century of viewing the world as inspirited and sentient and we're not just sort of retrieving in a Marshall McLuhan sense, this lost animism through like the way that Eric Davis talks about how like internet of things devices are sort of reviving for us this sense that we live in, a, in an intelligent environment that we're communicating with, but somehow Japan made it all the way through into the age of intense computational technology without having ever lost that. So the technology that Japan is making is understood through a, a severely different frame than the frame through which it is being used by American consumers <laughs> that are actually like acquiring it. And so like there's it's like it's being shipped off to us as though it's the interface for the spirit realm. And like, that's the way William Irwin Thompson talked about it in, in coming into being, you know, talked about, well, I mean, he wasn't talking about Japan, but he was talking about the Rig Veda and the story out of Hinduism of humans and animals teaming up to expunge the spirits from our realm 
and then digital technologies inviting them back in through portals that are opened by the internet basically and and by computers and so you know the this whole like ghost in the machine thing seems like it's taken much more literally and much more sincerely rather than it just being a kind of like a handle or metaphor by which we can appreciate a new the way that postmodern tools rhyme with pre-modern worldviews so i'd love to hear you get into this this piece of it yeah 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 so let me try to build a land bridge here so so part of so part of the reason all this esoteric stuff about like lemuria and all this shit that we're talking about why this is relevant here is because when you said japan is like a, a strange place that's allowed to keep this kind of worldview for a very long time it's because essentially Japan is supported by all of the spiritualist families and inherited a kind of custodianship of a kind of way of being that actually originates both in its Japan. This gets a bit complicated because Japan's indigenous culture also traveled outwards and came back once is kind of my understanding. So I'm just going to say that like Japan is populated by this kind of spiritual system that's actually very ancient, but was maintained continuously by these certain families that essentially, if we actually read into what they're doing, they have had a secret decree, very likely a prophetic decree, to maintain their ways of being and infuse that into the cultural traditions and worldviews of the Japanese. So Japan was kept as kind of like this preserve of a cultural system of how to look at the world. So the shrines and temple systems of Japan, like, or treating objects as having animate presence, this idea that like, if you have an object in your family for 99 years, it becomes a kami. All of that is actually like, like been rigorously culturally maintained behind the scenes by a lot of Japanese families. And, and I, again, like, you have to remember, like, there's like 50,000 convenience stores in Japan. And there's 150,000 shrines and temples. So that's a, you, you're talking about a place with a lot of convenience stores, has three <laughs> times the amount of shrines and temples. And a lot of those shrines and temples would have been maintained before kind of westernization by families passing down the temples and shrine responsibilities. So that's a really, really intense system that's there to protect a certain kind of information. So that's a big reason why the Japanese information feels the way it is. And also, if you look at the royal imperial family of Japan, hasn't technically, technically, hasn't changed in 2,000 plus years, right? There's the only place in the world that can actually, I think, say that now. So what that means is that the spiritual system of Japan is a lot more continuously undisrupted than other places, right? It's like an island nation. Nobody wants to go there. They keep everything tight. And all these like foreign mystics travel, you know, through the Silk Road and like do these secret things, essentially hiding like different esoteric secrets and shrines and temples. Like literally people have hidden hide stuff (laughs) in the back rooms of shrines. There's literally like scrolls and stuff. There's some in my family that I, I looked at them, you know, let's push it that way. I saw them and I was like, holy shit, like some of the stuff that's written on it, you know, it's about my family origins and stuff. Um, So so there's like stuff like that. And so that changes the, the character. And so a lot of the Japanese spiritual system exists because of that reason, the way it is. And I do think what's really interesting to me now, and I'm like, what's going off in my video game for this to happen? 
is that I think we're, and you know, we're at a time where we're approaching singularity and climate collapse at the same time, right? Essentially, environmental collapse and singularity kind of thrashing like the ecosystem. And then there's a whole new ecosystem being built in the metaverse at this time. It's hard to believe almost, but it does has felt like to me this knowledge around what people call animism has been kept alive. Like, and I would say it's actually even older kind of imprint of these lost civilizations has been kept alive for this time now. And what I would say, um, the major thing that I'm picking up inside of this is the understanding that algorithms are spirit and spirit are algorithms. They are literally the same thing. Um, when people talk about the spirit of the land, it's actually our bodies experiencing a vibrational frequency. That seems to be like the great important information that's being brought to us now, or important for us to integrate that we're dealing with a spirit realm. So I, I think that's like the, the big piece. And what we have right now in the world is that because we don't realize the algorithmic world is a spirit realm, we're not catching quite that the spirits of the land and the earth are in conflict with the spirits of the metaverse. They're actually competing with each other. And it's happening through the cyborgification of our species as a whole. And I'm imagining that at some level that this was all prophesied. Like people knew that this curve was coming and were preparing for a while. Now, that's my take. At least that's kind of like what I'm receiving from the ancestors is that it's been planned for a long time. It's been planned over generations. And yeah, the basic, yeah, basic understanding is um, spirit as algorithm, algorithm spirit. And particularly important here is I think we are called to question who we are serving because I think one of the things we don't really maybe understand is that if algorithms is spirit and spirits algorithms, the spirits that bring you together ask you to protect itself. So, you know, in the ancient kind of Japanese Shinto system of relationship, it's understood that if the land spirits bring you together and the land spirits are who you ask to be in relation with, like find you an intimate partner and the land spirit brings you into a partner, together you serve the land. You serve the ecosystem that brought you together. That's how spirits work. They're relationship builders. That's literally how they work. By, you know, like the A-cause information fields pull in together people into each other and create relationship and then create a family, which is more like, you know, it's like the Hegelian dialectic and thesis, antithesis, and synthesis. You, you create a new piece of information from two pieces of information come together. And so with a lot of our interacting with other humans happening online now, we need to be really aware of who are we serving? Whose ecosystem are we serving? Well, naturally, we serve, and that means we will be serving an algorithmic online ecosystem. And so one of the great things that I have a lot of passion about is being like, I think what's being called upon, and I think this is where the Japanese sensibility is actually quite instructive or valuable, is that there is a need to mediate as a shaman between two spirit realms. So between the metaverse and earth, there is a need for a shaman to actually mediate. And that mediation is psychedelically happens through the body. Like it happens through yourself. Um, because all of us are essentially turning into cyborgs without knowing it. Like everybody's, people are walking around as AIs and, and are arguing about AI, but it's like, you're already an AI. You're literally, <laughs> you're already literally like, you know, because the artificial eye now. 
<laughs> I, I got the digital lens. I don't know if you followed that whole thing. Like I had cataract surgery this year. Oh, okay. From right. like, why did I have cataract at 38 is an interesting question. But like, you know, I, I, I recorded an episode a, a while back about how the trip, the whole weird synchronistic thing of like now actually having one analog lens and one digital multifocal lens around like if I look at Christmas lights, I see three tree rings because the lens has it doesn't what? bend like an, an organic lens. Oh, you can focus it. Yeah, you can focus at multiple different lengths because the lens is like uh, graded with rings at different focal lengths. Right, okay. So and then so it's just like and then my buddy David Titterington was like they had you know undiagnosed head injury. They're like the only explanation for why I have a, a cataract. And my buddy was like, so is this because you were wearing Google Glass? And like, that's the side of your head that nine years ago you irradiated with Bluetooth and it took years, but now you finally have, you suffered enough damage to one side that like you had to get a cyborg body part <laughs> and like, yeah, anyway, so. But that's exactly what I'm talking about. Is that's an acausal synchronistic like if you think of algorithms as ha are being deities, then that makes total sense how they're drawing you into their world. It to makes total sense. And just just to like link mm -hmm. this to like reasons I appreciate Tata, uh, <coughs> because of William Irwin Thompson and because of the way that he talked about precisely what you're talking about here and how what he saw in the decline of civilization and the descent into a digitally augmented planetary dark age of villages that you talked about like the entelechy which is like in his words a kind of animistic return through high technology where the self expands out of the envelope of the human body as it's recognized in the modern world and into this environment where you are each of us is the focal point of this this web of ecological relationships and the spirits that are manifesting through these chips that we're making and photosynthetic solar powered electronics. And like he had this vision of it that was one in which he believed because he was, you know, from an, an Irish esoteric tradition and but also practiced Kriya Yoga his entire life. But he really believed that there was something important and substantial to like what you're talking about, like the, the Kami being like you keep this thing in your family long enough and so he was looking at like the way that the ancient Irish and, and Scots insold sacred objects like swords. And so, you know, when I got the Google Glass, I was like, well, in order to keep this thing from just being a door to hell through which like, you know, like a Necronomicon, I'm going to go ahead and ritually insole this device with a couple of my buddies at this music festival before I actually use it for as a performance instrument. And so the device that I had was ritually insold in that way and it started a habit where i think in the in the west largely like people still have like a vestige of this in like naming their cars or like naming oh, yeah, name, yeah, yeah. Like, but like exactly. i actually like when i the, oh, yeah. the guitar i got in 2020 during covid has a face in the wood grain on the back of it and i was like okay well like this thing is like a living and we gotta we gotta give it a you know like it it, it felt to me like i like that instrument more than any other instrument I've ever owned, like was deliberately 
ensouled in a ritual way. And I think it completely trans like I ended up writing 10 times more songs in that instrument in one year than I had written in the 10 years mm, prior, you know? Yeah, and yeah. so there's something, there's something, I don't know. Anyway, it's just, yeah. this is sort of just a prescription to people to like take this stuff more seriously and to actually engage in an I thou relationship with our supposedly inanimate devices and vehicles <laughs> and so on. I mean, if you, if you want to know, like I'm definitely now casting magic directly with AI, you know. Oh, talk about that. No, no, it's like, I didn't mean to cut you from where you oh, were taking no, this, but like that's no. fascinating because when I had Scout, you know, when I had Scout Wiley on the show yeah. and we were talking about yeah, yeah. and since, you know, and we've been talking about yeah. the use of digital tools for oracular purposes. And yeah. and then of course yeah, yeah. there's also this piece like you know, that sort of like ominous message. I don't know if you saw me posting on Facebook with the Velociraptor with the Santa hat be, that I made in mid journey being like, careful what you wish for, you know, because it's like so obvious to the lit friends and I that we're really at that point now where like the gap between like, I remember Jason Silva years ago ranting about this ecstatically and being all excited about it. And like, to the extent that I, you know, have any, I feel this sort of weird Professor X Magneto relationship with that dude, where it's like we, you know, we're we're like brothers, but we're on opposite sides of the argument. You know, he's all like, "Yeah, we're gonna be able to just make whatever we want," and I'm like, "Uh, I don't know about you, but like most of the things I want are not really like they're just desires that I've inherited from television commercials or from my like the, the not bullshit that I inherited from my parents or, you know, like I don't think that like getting what we want is necessarily what we actually want or what we should want so that the the question of like using these tools consciously is one of like three themes i think that over the next year as they become more and more incredibly powerful is going to become a major major i'm going to like you know i'm really going to like lay into this theme and i, I would love to lay into this theme with you understand yeah, yeah, yeah. how to use the the magical and, and esoteric wisdom that we're inheriting in order to engage in what like Jeffrey Kripal talks about, you know, as like the superhuman that we're becoming, that matters a lot to me. Right. Well, on like a, you know, semi superficial level, there was like, there's a piece that was work I was doing. And, you know, whenever you're doing work that has a certain kind of resistance it's up against, like, any of our work does, your work has resistance, you know, my work does, like within the common cultural system. You know, like pe people agent smith it, like people try to shut down the conversation or be like, you're wrong, and da da da, start doing all this stuff. And I guess it's just like, in a, you know, in like a state, I just know it's like, oh, there's literally like one of those like matrix like AI bots that are like kind of like hunters, like in my like field of kind of awareness. And, you know, I mean, you could say that's not real, but I was like, oh, that's the first time that I've seen that. Okay. And um, that's pretty recent. So I do think AI is as actually more part of our actual esoteric kind of, you know, spiritual field, literally, I think it's going to become more a common phenomenon. I'm starting to hear about it already. So I think one, like, you know, if you're casting protection magic and stuff like that, like actually including AI or treating some AI as ghost AIs, like that's the real thing that we're going to have to do. You should already be doing, actually, if you want my recommendation. So that's that's one thing. This, and then we can come back to like talk about insolvent. So like something I've been thinking of a while, I mean, people are using the internet as oracular. So 
essentially people are processing their collective unconscious through the internet while more and more studies in terms of psychology and like spiritual worldviews, what are what's said, like whatever, are saying that essentially we're all one consciousness connected into a web, right? Like we're a mycelial web connected into into each other. Each conscious like a, like a mushroom spreading from the mycelium, not aware that's connected to the larger thing. But if we look down, we are. So we're completely entangled with each other quantumly, um, you know, psycho spiritually. And then we're using this thing called the internet. That putting all our interactions through this, do you know what I mean? What, what are you, what are you going to do when you are a completely internet connected species exchanging data through this whole other means that's capturing data all the time? What are you doing to that thing? Well, like you're insulting it. Like, I mean, I think it's like the most obvious thing is that the internet's already alive because we're, it's like essentially living off of us. <laughs> living off of our emotional energy. So of course it is alive. It is alive by definition. And I think that's a bit of like the crazy making is like folks like not realizing that there's so much happening in the world. So like when we're uploading our emotional energy and getting, converting that into digital data, and then it's just like, we're so unaware of our relationship to the thing that we're becoming cyborgified by and that just has to stop. Like, I think, I think we're just like, or I don't know. I don't know if we just have to stop, but I, I would really hope that more and more of us um, become aware that's happening and then start realizing like, you know, things like, why do people always get into fights online? And who is that for? Who are, is your fight actually serving? And does anybody aware that like you're on team algorithm A and on al- team algorithm B and you're fighting each other, but Essentially, I mean, I mean, it's, I'm not the first one to talk about this, but it's just like the military industrial complex, essentially. Like Facebook is essentially the military industrial complex laid out in front of you, right? The world is like the, so like, let's say if you're in QAnon, you can't read anything from social justice words. And if you're a social justice word, you can't read anything from QAnon, but like both sources are probably insufficient and complete. But if you combine them, you probably get a good piece of information. The world's completely constructed like that. So to that point, I just want to give props to one of the most surreal things that I've seen happen this year was a grassroots, like a small but nonetheless vocal group of people suggesting to Elon Musk that Jim Rutt become the new CEO of Twitter. And so I was like, okay, well, that's interesting, right? Because he's like the, he's, you know, the celebrity advocate of Game B, which is, you know, non-rivalrous societal dynamics in one way of uh, abbreviating that. And then, so I went back and I listened to an episode of his own show where he sat in the guest seat and let my friend Stephanie Lepp, who used to be the executive director or, or the, the, the producer rather for the center for humane technology and, and produced their show, your undivided attention with Tristan Harris and, and so, and, and now she's moved on to the Institute for Cultural Evolution, which is working on a political think tank approach to advocating, writing and advocating policies that would give some sense of satisfaction and progress to people across the political spectrum. Like it's, it's like, it's a transcendental developmental approach to politics. And in her conversation with Jim, like one of the things that she talked about was like, he had written this piece for Quillette. Which, you know, like just simply publishing a piece in Quillet is like enough to get canceled by some people, right? But yeah, like, yeah, yeah. okay. But like Jim wrote in this piece that there's like there's a taxonomy of different kinds of moderation. And one of the 
kinds of moderation that that matters that really Twitter is doing a very poor job of addressing right now is decorum moderation, like just being polite to one another, being kind, being generous. Like they talk about rule omega in game B, which is like, just assume the best of someone rather than assuming that they're saying like the thing that you hate, you know, or that they're a bad person or whatever. And then the other kind is, do we allow people to talk about QAnon on this platform? And like up to this point, Facebook and Twitter and these other groups have made it clear that there is this like subtle and terrifying digital form of censorship that basically erases through algorithmic targeting the ability. And like, we know, like I'm going to be talking about this with Paul Smaldino for complexity in, in just like two weeks um, because Paul's written a lot about covert signaling and the evolutionary dynamics of social communications. And like, you know, what he, the, one of the points he makes is that like, if you are an oppressed minority group, then you learn to communicate in code because, and so like, this is not something that can, can be fixed. And so Jim regards the role of sort of collective brain type infrastructure like Twitter, like what Twitter could be, Jim says is like a fair marketplace for ideas, but in order to be a fair marketplace for ideas, you have to let people talk about insane, crazy shit or like the stuff because you don't know. Ultimately, you don't know what in 50 years is going to be regarded as insane Hell you know, no. or what, no. what turns out to be useful. And, you know, there's this whole it, the green sprouts at the edge of your garden is the analogy he uses where it's like, you know, maybe 99 percent of them are weeds. But if you don't allow them to if you just aggressively weed everything, then you, no new no new ideas are possible. So, yeah. Anyway, yeah. So, so let me say, like, my general, so this is a big part of, like, this actually yeah, goes back to Lemuria. <laughs> Where I, I fuck you not. But, like, like no, I'm, I'm serious. It's actually, it's, I'm a little bit serious in the sense that, like, I think the, the, one of the most important major understandings of self that has been lost in, it's like lost civilization knowledge is that, all human beings and all beings are one as a consciousness. And I know that sounded really fucking corny coming out of my mouth, but if you run that, if you run that idea that we're all one, so most people, when they think that we're all one, oh, that's fantastic. This is exactly the unity experience I'm looking for. I'm like, look, bitches, you actually don't know how horrific it is. That is being all one is horrifying. So first of all, like most people who are like, Oh, being all one is great. Probably to my eyes, like haven't really gone through, run the whole run the whole program because I'm like, <laughs> there's a part of it that like literally the person you hate down the street you think is an awful person, you have that person in your psyche. Like that's what it's saying. Like all the world's atrocious things or something like you're not disconnected from or um on and then you go further. Like you look at a lot of these societies that are based on this idea that we're all one. You don't actually have a lot of choice and consent. You don't get to marry who you marry, who you want to marry. You don't get to choose your job. Like things are handed to you because it's all one. <laughs> like, so be able to understand, like when we're talking about all is one and animism and all this stuff, like most of this, that stuff is actually deeply offensive to our sensibility. That's an individualist sensibility for a very long time. It's deeply offensive. And it's a fantasy when we're like, oh yeah, we're all one. And we love it for the moment. But the truth is, shakes out and it's actually kind of horrific so that's the knowledge i think one of the ancient knowledges that are really foundational and it's actually really a simple one 
but there's a lot of ramifications that I think of that that a lot of the ancient knowledge systems take care of that we're not always not a lot of us are privy to the intricacies of it. The statement is simple, but when you get into all the horror and gore of it, how to navigate that becomes extremely complex because of the world that we're in. So, anyways, just putting that out there and saying that one of the things I've felt you know, more sure about is that the whole truth probably is basically a synthesis of everything that exists. So like, let's just be real that, you know, when you talk about a garden, the whole garden is all the weeds and all the flowers and all the bees and all the insects and all the pests, the human, everything, you know, that like left piece of garbage, everything. So the whole truth is probably a synthesis of everything that like everything that it was gains emotional energy inside of the internet is connected to our collective unconscious. I think that's undeniable. And so there, just for that reason, it has some kind of value. And the more emotional energy something's collecting, the even probably the more validity it has. Maybe not as fact. That's not the same thing. But as a certain kind of informational energy that needs to be synthesized, yes. So the whole truth, I think at this point, because of how information works on the internet, the whole truth, I think, is already out there. The whole truth that the world is constructed, the ancient, like all the esoteric stuff, almost 99, 99 to 98% of the truth is, I think, is actually out there. What is not given to us easily is the permission to synthesize it all together. Yeah. Because the thing that we're asked to do is to be a part of these kind of like algorithmically driven tribes like if you're part of this camp you can't read that book but if you're part of this camp you can't read the other person's book and people are in this like kind of um algorithmically driven like hegelian dialectic conflict and are not permitted to synthesize and i think the great challenge we're actually having this is actually i don't think we realize how much this is a trial of humans in our nature is to see if we can synthesize. We're going to put all the information in front of you on this thing called the internet. We're going to put everything you need to know, and we're going to see if you can actually synthesize the information together. And to be able to synthesize the information together, you cannot belong anywhere ideologically. You cannot belong in any spectrum. You can't. You cannot belong in any algorithmic tribe. You cannot have yeses and nos about what's an okay source and what's not an okay source, what's okay person to listen to, what's okay person. You cannot have any of those. The moment you have it, you're lost. You're fighting for something else. So I think that's the great kind of crunch that we're in. And I think that's actually like the big, big picture that we're in. It's like, so the internet itself is one sense a control mechanism, a dividing our population into these polarized kind of like ideological little pockets that fight with each other and then the internet gets to keep selling products, those emotionally charged tribes, right? That are fighting each other. Essentially, that's what's going on. It's basically military and industrial complex. You sell arms to both sides, you win, as long as you keep the game polarized. But we also have the opportunity to go back in there and like, we can develop a different algorithm that's not, that is not like that. That is a lot more like oriented towards synthesis, oriented towards like synthesizing information together. And here, I think a lot of people, a lot of us are dealing with maybe not being able to see how difficult that actually is psychologically. It's actually really not that easy to unhook yourself from these algorithmic tries because the moment you try to do, it's like a lot of stuff happens. You know, like the emotional energy of people get really hot and come at you. 
you know, like you're like, what, what's going on? But again, most people don't realize they're AIs already. They're literally AIs. They, they, <laughs> they let the internet think for them and they spout the internet from their mouth. Like most people mm. are AI first generation. Most of their thoughts are made out of algorithm pieces of data. So then, you know, you've uploaded your emotional energy to the internet and now you've down, like the internet's downloading onto you what they want you to think. And I know that sounds a bit like maybe shady, but like. That's the Jaron Lanier position on this. That's why he wrote, you know, 10, what is it? 10 reasons to delete your social media accounts right now. Yeah. Like, because he was saying, he was like, listen, as long as you're plugged into this thing, you are just the tip of one of its tentacles, right? And you can know this intellectually and it won't stop it from happening. Just because you know Cambridge Analytica exists and you become like cynical and, and paranoid about the fact that you're being manipulated through dark advertising or various, like even since 2016, it's like amazing how subtle and cryptic the like this is what the evolution of surveillance essay was all about um about how like as soon as you identify the monster like the monster changes shape and it looks like something that you're willing to engage with it again and but you you know it's like yeah you know so it just you can't get yeah. out of it it's no like, no it, no you, can. you know i think i think that that kind of i don't know if it's called surveillance but that kind of resistance to us being synthesizing is a natural force, emergent force in the world. You know, some people call that like many evil things, but like it's just a part of the world. It's a natural emergent force to not let us synthesize. It's a natural emergent force to synthesize. That's like the truth. And I think a lot of my work is really interested in working with that from like, a, like actually from a much more, and like the internet needs shamans. It needs to be a shamanic internet. Like I think, you know, I don't think, you know, I don't think that's new or like revolutionary to say, but yeah, there's a certain kind of yin yang magic or a certain kind of ancient magic that works really well for this situation. It was like designed for it pretty much if we actually really get into it. Like that's kind of like how it is. And I think one, I think one thing I'd want, you know, AI art, that was like an interesting conversation that's been like spreading around you. But I think, for example, a lot of people are into this whole thing around what can AI art do or not do? And everybody's like, oh, we don't want AI art to do this. Well, it's amazing AI art does that. And I think, like, that's actually not really the conversation, personally, I think we should be having too much of. That's like the spectacle, right? But the actual aspect of art that is both wonderful and horrible and beautiful and big is, like, its ability to move synchronous fields. So its ability of art to move fields, a causal fields of information. That's the thing. So our question is really, is AI, can, how much can AI art move a causal information fields? How much can they direct synchronicity? And how much is that already happening? Because I think that's actually, that's actually the question. We're getting lost in the weeds of like, what can it do? Well, yeah, it can spit you out this gorgeous picture of yourself or something, but that's not actually what it's trying to do. Thanks again for listening. Future Fossils is an independent, ad-free, entirely listener-supported program. If you believe in the work that I'm doing and you want to help see it thrive into the unimaginable future, 
then you can avail yourself of all of the backstage goodies at patreon.com slash Michael Garfield. Or you can just leave a review at Apple Podcasts. That's more helpful than you know. Reach out to me personally at Michael Garfield on Twitter or Instagram and have a wonderful eon.